Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Hey there now, it's Wood Talk number 178 for April 14th, 2014. On today's show, Brian can't square up his table saw blade, Larry's contemplating a combo blade for a saw, David's considering modern sharpening for a classic plane, and a whole mess of voicemails from the Wood Talk community. All that and more coming up. I know, right? Exciting stuff. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Festool. Not just tools, but an entire system of saws, sanders, dust extraction, and more. All designed to work together for cleaner, faster, and more precise results. See the latest at FestoolUSA.com. Good stuff. And real quick, I'd like to thank some of our donors and recurring donors. James S., Christopher H., Jeffrey A., Ryan O., and John S, thank you so much, guys, for helping us out. We always appreciate that. And you can help us out, too, if you head to woodtalkshow.com. Look over on the left-hand side, and you'll see some links for helpful donations that keep us happy. Keeps uh, Matt in tacos. Yeah, uh, hola. <laughs> Which is always important. <laughs> uh, yeah, we really always appreciate that, that support. so random. Hola. <laughs> That's great. Perfect. Uh, and That's by the, the way. la gato? Exactly. And uh, that, that, that is the meat that they serve, though. Yeah, uh, I, I know. At Taco I Bell. Work for them once. <laughs> um, the other thing we should mention today is it's kind of like a birthday show. In a Yay, way. birthday show. Not the show's birthday, but uh, mine and uh, my co-host Matt's birthday. Uh, mine, That's right. Yeah, mine's tomorrow, yeah. 15th. I'm a tax baby, and uh, Matt is a day after tax day baby. That's Actually, right. I, I'm, I'm kind of like the forgotten one. You're fireworks babies. What's that? Nine right. months ago. There was some partying going on. Hey, that's right. That yep. explains a lot. Yep. yep. Mama Van was somewhere around a keg, and who knows what happened after that? Well, we do know what happened. <laughs> yes, nine we months do. later, a little baby Matt was born. Hello. That's right. All right. I know about how little. <laughs> right. Okay, moving on. Let's do uh, what's on the bench. I'll go first. Not a whole lot for me, just a little bit of blade sharpening. It's kind of in between projects getting ready for the Morris chair build, so it's kind of the calm before the storm. And uh, about once a year, I do like to send those blades out for sharpening. And I've got the the woodworker, too, and my Tenru table saw blade, so my my saw is pretty much just non-functional until those come back. Uh, Sent them both out for sharpening over at Forest. And um, do you guys ever, I mean, I know, Shannon, you don't deal much with power tool blades anymore, but in the past, do you guys use local resources for sharpening, or um, do you bother sending it out to to other places like like Forest? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I have my Forest 2 blade in the packaging right now, and... uh, I'm waiting to to mail it out. But if it wasn't for the forest too, I normally just take it to a, a local sharpener and I've had decent results uh, so far, at least or the other that, or maybe I'm finally discovering they're not so decent. And that's why I had to go to a blade <laughs> like the forest too. Yeah. 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 See, the thing with the forest too, is it comes with that neat little box uh-huh. specifically to send back to the manufacturer. Yeah. It's perfect. So I just never bothered. It was just like, oh, okay, I just put it in here and send it to you guys. Well, the thing is I even send them my 10 blade. I mean, they, they say they sharpen anything, but I got to figure, you know, you send them a non forest blade and be like, here, sharpen this for me. I got to figure like they're going to, someone might just jack it up for you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> That's the one that they train on. Yeah. Let's do this one first to get some practice and then we'll move to the forest blade. <laughs> That's probably exactly it. Now I, I always spit on it and send it back. <laughs> I mean, I send them all types of stuff, uh, but I always make sure that if I'm going to send them that 10 Rue blade, there's a forest blade in there as well. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to just send them the 10 Rue alone, uh, but I did send them both blades. Both were sharpened just perfectly. 
Um, you know, there probably are local resources here, but I don't know that I want to be the one to test them out for myself and just figure out if they're any good. Um, so if anybody does have recommendations for someplace in Arizona that I could, you know, preferably in the Phoenix area, because what I'm trying to do is avoid having to ship these things. Uh, when you're paying for sharpening on a yearly basis, the whole logic here is to save money in the long run. I spend a hundred bucks on a blade and then maybe I spend 20, 22 bucks a year to sharpen it excuse me, instead of paying like 50 or 60 bucks for a disposable blade and then having to rebuy another 50, $60 blade later on down the line. Um, so having a local place to do this and cutting out the shipping cost would certainly add to that long-term savings. So if anyone has a recommendation in Arizona, please let me know. That'd be great. Yeah. I, you know, the, the, service that, the service that I have around here, I mean, they are one that I know that a lot of the professional uh woodworkers in the area take their stuff there mm, okay. they uh, they are very well known for that but sh- there are a couple others though not too far mm-hmm. from where i live that i have a feeling that just because they have a saw blade a really old rusty one hanging out in front of their their shop that says <laughs> sharpening all things right eh, not so much maybe not everything <laughs> maybe not nah. if there's a there's a millwork nearby mark um they won't necessarily advertise it as a service, but uh, sure, sure. they'll probably sharpen the blade for you. You know, and all like, the, all the uh, places that have millworks in the location, like the, um, oh, what the heck is it? My lumber dealer has a place where they just do a lot of molding. They've got a, a shop that's as big as one of their warehouses. So they're putting a lot of uh, lumber through this thing. I bet you they've got, if they don't do it in-house, then they certainly would know someone locally that does it. Yeah. Well, like, and that's the great irony. If I still was using a table saw, I could just take my blade to work with me. Yeah. And- Al, Big Al is actually is what we call him. Al would just do it for me. I mean, the dude, all he does all day long is sharpen essentially shaper knives, molder knives. If there's a guy that you want to, if there's a guy you want working on your tools, it's a guy named Big Al. Absolutely. Big Al is... We have a big Big L screams woodworking. (laughs) Totally. All right. Well, that's it for me. So uh, how about you, Shannon? Um, Well, first, I I just wanted to say... uh, Thank you to everyone who signed up for the class I've got coming up in June. You're welcome. Um, we were talking. Hey, hey looking forward to teaching you <laughs> I'll something. I'll be there. I'll be there. Something you can use. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, I was just saying to the guys before we went live, the biggest fear I had in, in teaching um, in real life, like in a brick-and-mortar establishment, is that no one would show up. So it was, it was a nice relief that uh, essentially – I'm going to call the class virtually full because there's some invoices out for deposits that haven't come back yet. Um, mm-hmm. You so know who you are. Be, yeah. So pay your damn invoices. Um, but as I understand it, there's enough people inquiring and sniffing around that if those don't come through, we should be full. So Good. Um, that that's just cool. I'm, I'm excited that it, it took basically a day uh, once the video came out to fill up the class. There you go. And then um, I uh, started playing around with this uh, – crazy little joint it's a japanese joint called a a lapped gooseneck it's got some crazy japanese name to it but this was uh i'm hoping to get a little video out maybe not this week but next week that shows how i i cut it and uh i wanted to give a shout out uh to neil um Kronk, I guess is how you say his last name. Mm-hmm. He's the dude that won the dovetailing thing at the Hand Tool Olympics at Woodworking America last year. Is that Two Wheel Neil on Twitter? Yes, okay. yes. He's starting up something. He's just calling Hand Joinery. And I think right now he's going to do it every other week. And I think he's shooting to try to do it every week. And his eventual goal is to create a podcast out of this. And he essentially is tackling a, a user or, excuse me, an audience-suggested joint 
every um, every other week. And right now he's just kind of doing it on Twitter, just using the hashtag hand joinery, yeah. taking photographs kind of every stage in the process. So like he did one of those crazy um, miter lock joints because I guess basically somebody was trying to mess with him and said, here, take this wicked yeah. router bit and Challenge cut it him. by hand. Um, and the same thing happened when uh, Megan Fitzpatrick suggested this swan neck Japanese joint. But I, I got to say it was really cool to to cut it. And, um, you know, they're talking about doing some kind of crazy bridal joint and then kind of alternating doing like a stump kneel week and then just more of a regular uh, joint for so that it's not quite so elitist, I guess, would be the best word for it. We don't necessarily want to be let's just throw every crazy joint out there, but maybe somewhat educational. Um, So maybe one week he'll do something more simple and then do more advanced next week. I just think it's a really cool idea and I wish, I wish Neil luck and I hope that some people will participate. I'm going to definitely do it again. It was just kind of neat to take crazy hard joint that I'd never done before and figure out how I would cut this and, and just, cut one and i was trying to think of the last time that i actually sat down and just cut a joint in abstract and uh i enjoyed it it was a lot of fun so i'll have a little short little uh video coming out no instruction just kind of typical watching me cut it um next week i think nice good stuff a vanity video i like those (laughs) a vanity video i like that (laughs) all right well hey you know what I know you guys are going to ask me what I'm doing because it's almost my birthday. What you, you want to know? Matt? What's this guy doing? Mm-hmm. Lumberjack Lumber. Matt. That's right. What? I haven't what? been wearing any plaid in a while. You're silly. Anyways, though, uh, totally off topic. Wait, hold on. Wait, having a brain fart. Oh my god. Just you all right, Matt? You want me to jump you in okay and help there, you? Matt? <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to just let him sink, but uh, I feel like I need to jump in. That's exactly what moment. I think it is. You guys are listening to the meltdown. Actually, no. What ended up happening this weekend, I went to Chicago, and I hung out with Jeff Miller and Scott Meeks, and uh, I had a lot of fun. I haven't been to a, a Lee Nielsen tool event in, a, oh. in two, three years, something like that. They're dangerous, man. It is. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. My favorite part is to sit there and watch – the folks come in and then there's that, you know, that debate that you can see the internal dialogue going on mm-hmm. and then they like they walk out and they come back in, they walk out and they come back in <laughs> and then they'll talk to somebody else. And, you know, that that part's really fun. But really, to be quite honest, I had so much fun just hanging out with Scott and Jeff and just just having just a regular conversation with a you know a couple of fellow woodworkers that I know from online. And just it was just an all around good time. It just it really it helped to reignite my spirit. Until I came home and found a giant tree limb in the middle of my front yard and across the street. That was fun to watch. Matt, ta- yeah. Matt sure. was a good time had by all. Me. Yeah. Did you get anything useful out of that tree or was it all just garbage wood? No, it, there, there is some decent stuff, but I'm, I'm going to end up, well, the limb itself that came down, uh, it's just going to be pure firewood. It's, it's just a huge, big limb that has all that uh, tension wood in it. Uh, yeah. But... On top of it, the reason why it came down is we discovered that um, there's some termites all through that thing. <laughs> Wonderful. So, yeah. So that tree is definitely going to be coming down. But the good news is, as I look at it, there's about easily, I'm going to say, 14 to 16 feet of probably decent straight grain wood. There's like no no branches coming off of it. So I'm really, really toying with the idea of maybe having somebody come in and mill me up some lumber mm. just just to experiment with it. I've never done the air-dried thing. But to be honest, once it probably comes down to it, I'll probably get their price and go, 
you know what? Never mind. Just, yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, just go ahead and chop that up. There's plenty of people in the area. Nothing is funnier than after a storm and the number of pickup trucks and, uh, and, and trailers that come around to do free uh, cutting for you. Sure. It's insane. <laughs> Firewood and all that good stuff. Did, in fact, did you we say come, what kind of tree is it? It's a red oak. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, okay. it, and it's it, it's 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 really tall. This particular the the portion that's left, um, it, it's it's really straight. I mean, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a trunk that's this straight. I mean, yeah. quite honestly, it's pretty it's pretty insane. But still, my my favorite part was we called a friend and said, "Hey, if you want to come over, you can you can cut this up. You can have all the all the wood for the cabin. You're all set here." And I literally had a guy pull up and he's like, "I'm going to take care of this for you." I'm like, "No, no, I have a friend." I almost had to put myself in front of a chainsaw to stop this guy from taking the most popular guy in the neighborhood. Nice. I was I was Mister Popular, and like I said, it was self riving, so that was really cool because it was it was insane how it just split the right way and it was just straight grain right down all those little chunks that. Self-rive. See, yeah, and that's the thing that makes me almost hesitant to have you like sawn it into boards because Red Oak is not – Red Oak is Red Oak. Uh, I think it gets a bad reputation because of Home Depot, frankly, because of the stuff they sell. Right. But <laughs> split, you know, perfectly riven Red Oak and it's just wonderful. Like the, okay. the Windsors that I've built have had steam bent – the, the whatchamacallit, the spindles and the bent parts are all made out of Red Oak. And okay. it is the most wonderful stuff to work when it's green and and air dried, and it's like, man, is this really is this really that stuff that I hate from Home Depot? It's a totally different species. Although, I mean, Fallensby's talked about this about how it's the most wonderful wood you'll ever work, but that's because he just split it out. And see, my problem is more visual. Cut. I just don't like the way it looks. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And that's why I was joking around about the whole making spoons and, and stuff like that's that. Why because you paint Windsor chairs. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. And that's that's my thing is I keep thinking like if I actually did go that route and I had this sawn up into, you know, actual usable lumber, mm-hmm. there's that part of me that's like, do I really want to have that much stuff and make <laughs> that many projects out of this red oak? Because yeah, when I walk past it in the home center, I'm just like, Oh, red oak. Yeah, it's and yeah. for me for me it's just been overdone sort of, I guess, culturally in a way, just things that I've seen growing up as a kid, anything made out of wood seemed to have that uh, classic red oak cathedral grain pattern. And it's just something that doesn't appeal to me. So the wood I'm sure is great. And I think it's very useful. If you like, if you're building a workbench and you've got a good price on uh, some really thick red oak stock, we'll use it, of course. Um, yeah. And if you like red oak, you like the look, I'm sure it's a dream to work with for some people that really enjoy it. But for me, it's all, all about the visual. Yeah. I think the other part that was really funny for my neighbors was them watching me actually, like once everything was cleared out of there, I went and got like this really old hatchet and I'm like, let's see what we can do with this. And number one, I discovered the hatchet is really, really dull, which means that's why I never used it previously during the fire pit. And number two, man, I have no forearm strength. So (laughs) after like two or three whacks, it's like, all right, I'm done. And I need ice for this arm over here. Meanwhile, the road is closed off and like, come on, Vandalist, get the damn tree out of the road. (laughs) That's yeah, exactly. It's like one of those, come on, buddy, will you please hurry this up? I'm like, no, I've got three more stabs to make. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right, let's move into what's new. Got a couple cool links for you. The first one here is a video that was sent in by Eric. And uh, do you guys remember the video that seems to never stop showing up in your inbox? Like, hey, have you seen this awesome table? Like, it'll be your aunt or your grandmother (laughs) sends it to you because it has to do with wood. And it's the expanding, the amazing expanding table. And it's this old video that's been around forever, viewed a million times. It's just crappy quality. Well, this is the video called Making the Fletcher. Is it Capstan or Capstan? In yes. nautical terms, do you guys know? 
I don't know. Either way, I heard it the second it, way. Capstan. I think it depends yeah. on which hemisphere you're on. Could it might. Anyway, yeah. it is a really good high quality video showing the making of such a table, which is much more fun to watch than the the original one that that made the rounds. And you can kind of see the guts of it, how it works, the gears, how the the entire system is constructed to allow it to rotate and open and the whole like the center section drops it down and it's the, the wildest thing. So if you haven't seen that first video, you're in for a treat. If you have, you're still in for a treat because now you get to see how this crap works. Uh, really good stuff. So we'll put the link in there for you guys to check that out. And I heard a rumor that there's going to be a challenge between the hand tool school and the guild to see who can build it first. Ah! And, uh, no, going from there. You know. I did not hear well, that, but okay. Oh, I'm starting that rumor right now. I didn't hear that. <laughs> if, if everybody can email in and, and which side you want to go on, we'll there get this go. rolling. That'd be good. Okay. I'm email hey, well, in Mark. Mark should do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we have this next, uh, uh, looks like it's a video, and this is from Eric R. And Eric said, engineer and tinkerer, turnvader, Janosh. Oh, I hope that's his name and not a title. Uh, shows that, off his. That was the villain in Ghostbusters 2, right? Turn, Janosh? Turn Vader? No, that was Star Wars. Oh. <laughs> you, you're, you're confusing the two. Uh. Uh, so, anyways, he shows off his ingenious and mesmerizing mechanical clock that uses steel balls to display the time. Even though uh, he uses uncommon household items to build it, the timekeeping is accurate over 12 hours within one second. Wow. So, yeah. That's Pretty cool. impressive. I can't even. Over 12 hours, I am way off more than one second. <laughs> Clocks <laughs> are amazing, you- definitely. Uh, I, when we did the uh, wooden geared clock project that Rick did uh, for our website, oh, yeah. I, just watching him do the whole thing, and I know he's mostly following a plan, but the minds that put this stuff together to, to allow these things to even work in the first place is amazing. So clocks right. definitely up there on, on my list of very cool woodworking projects. I will say, though, that this one, it's a, it's a really neat video and that the whole engineering of how he did this and, and how this whole thing goes together. It's really, really neat. But I think this clock would drive me insane. To be <laughs> Just to have it in your you. house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we had um, two people write in with similar type things. So I'm rolling Andy and Sean together here. Uh, Andy says that his other addiction is fountain pens and sketchbooks. Uh, and when Field Notes, when the Field Notes brand launched their new Shelterwood special edition with cherry covers, I had to get them. And this has made its rounds for a little bit, but they're really beautiful little um, notebooks that have a cherry veneer cover. So it combines wood and his other love, sketchbooks. So there you go. And then Sean said, uh, these notebooks are made by Baron Fig. They're comparable to moleskins. Uh, but they have thicker paper and are a few bucks cheaper and made by a small group of guys. So, again, we all, a lot of people talk about, you know, keeping a, a sketchbook nearby to kind of jot down ideas and sketch out ideas of your next furniture piece or inspiration. Mm-hmm. Here's a couple of options for you, and one of them happens to be made from wood. Well, technically, they're all made from wood. Paper. Yes, the yeah, pulp and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are they expensive? Are there prices on any of this? I don't think so i mean it's not like they're like i know the shelterwood ones aren't very big um, yeah yeah i want to say that like they're within like the the 20 30 dollar range or something so i guess depending on your hey. perspective on that you know if if, uh, if you do enjoy a good fountain pen and you do enjoy a good you know notebook, <laughs> a notebook that is totally worth money. <laughs> that's the problem with it it's like my shop notebooks just by necessity have to be the cheapest crap out there because I'm just going to rip through them. Uh, I do save them, but I don't, uh, I don't respect them enough to justify having a good quality version of it. I just kind of bucks, 10 bucks for the shelter wood. Oh, that's the, not that bad. One. 
I mean, yeah. but but compared to your like, I don't know, what's a notebook at CVS cost? <laughs> you know, like ninety nine <laughs> right. cents or something. Uh, all right, cool. Well, next link here is from Tim. He says, interesting article on redwood burl poaching that they liken it to uh, elephant tusk poaching. And this is up in the uh, redwoods in the northwest. Uh, apparently, people are going into the forest and chopping down burls. And wow. it, people have even gone to the extent of getting the burls that are raised up above the ground and trying to saw them off. This one in particular apparently was a very large burl. They couldn't get it into the back of the truck and they could see marks uh, from this thing being drugged behind the pickup truck that was used. Oh my gosh. So they drag it out and there's a trail now that they can follow and it led them to an underpass where the, the uh, right off of the freeway where the people had stuffed it and kind of put it there for safekeeping, I guess, hoping to come back later and track it down and, and sell it. So the funny, the interesting thing, it's not, none of this is really funny, but interesting thing is they say that a lot of these people that are doing it are like meth addicts that are finding like when i think of a drug addict doing things like the usually you think like of manual like, labor i just oh my gosh see. you know what this takes makes to, okay so we are reality show junkies and several years ago uh a and e had like the um intervention was the the big drug addiction one or, yeah. or alcoholism or something like that mm-hmm. and there was a guy who I, I want to say he was a meth head, and that's exactly what he did. This oh, wow! I didn't even, it just as you were mentioning <laughs> just made that, the connection for you. Yeah, and he would do, he would go out and totally just that was his whole thing. He was obsessed with this idea that he could hit this mother load with burls, and so he was out. And him and his friends were like practically attacking each other to get these burls. It's it's hilarious in a terrible way. I mean, it is. it's like okay, I could see you 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 know rob a store, you you hold up a store, or you steal stuff from people, you know, in houses. Like, but but going into the woods and and sawing out burl and taking it to a dealer, like it's such a weird thing to do for <laughs> for like a drug addict. <laughs> oh man, put what, that put that. What was really bad energy. was that at one point, just to kind of carry on with, with what this guy was doing. He had a truckload uh, full of burls that he had kind of done this with, and he would go to Turner's, and then he'd get angry with. With them because they'd be like, no, that's not something I could work with. I can't work with that. And then yeah. he would just flip out on them. So I wonder how many because this guy I think would just throw them as, oh, away or something like, you don't even know what you're getting or not getting. Man, that's nuts. Well, either way, interesting article. It's it's really a shame because um, obviously it does damage to the tree. It, it, it leaves them exposed for diseases and uh, insects. and so it usually kills the tree. Um, yeah, it's just bad news and, you know, uh, especially on these big uh, redwoods that have been there for a very, very long time. Sad stuff. All right, let's move into the poll of the week. Uh, Our buddy there, Tom Iovino at tomsworkbench.com asked the question very simply, do you use a block plane? Hmm, block plane. Can you describe the shape of one? It's shaped like a plane. And it's, so it's a little blockier. blocky, yeah. Oh. Mm. Uh, so we had about, uh, well, there's a lot of people answered, 700, almost 750 voted on this one. And uh, 60% said that they're essential tools. 30% said very nice to have. Only 6% said that they're okay. And uh, 3% said only if someone buys them, from, buys them for me. And almost 1%, only seven votes though, say a total waste of time. What? Yep. <laughs> Oh my lord! That was uh, Matt from seven different IP addresses. Just screwing <laughs> those are the people that are just trying to make a point. They're just, they're just trying to get their think, name in lights as I the one percent. Well, those are the people who probably hate the poll. 
Right. Do you know what I mean? Like right. they just—it's like, why are you asking stupid questions? This is dumb. I'm just gonna, you know, click the thing that's gonna make you have something stupid to say about it. There you go. Oh, uh, good stuff. Thanks for that, Tom. We always appreciate it. And uh, I think the three of us are guilty of using our block planes quite a bit. Yeah, yes, I've used it for which one to use. <laughs> right. Hell yeah. I use my Tuesday block plane today. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you laugh, but I almost I. Well, you must have seven of them. I okay. almost have one for every day. Of the week. You have to have That's them in terrible. like, like almost like a uh, old person's pillbox. You got to have one like with the little number M T W for each day. I need, I need to call. Uh, oh, what's her name? The lady who engraves planes, um, Catherine um, Kennedy. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Um, who? And I need to have her engrave like this ornate Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on it. No, what's going to be really funny is years down the road when somebody finds that at an antique right. store, and they're like, "Wow, what is this?" What is this Veritas R? Seriously, my entire mission in life is to just mess with like archaeologists of the future. Mm. Sorry, I had to get a drink. Okay, mm. let's move into our kickback. Got a couple of them here for you. Howard wrote in and said, in reference to your discussion on 176 about Art Deco, Shannon may have come closest by saying the fundamental techniques are in every other furniture form, so just learn those specific techniques. Art Deco was all about the veneers, plus materials hobbyists tend not to incorporate into their projects like ivory and metals. And I guess we mentioned Silas Kopf, uh inlays, but he said they're definitely not part of that profile. There's no question that the man is a master, but that's not what Art Deco is. If your listener is looking for inspiration, he recommends um, Judith Miller's Furniture, I guess, uh, on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Look her up. Great book. Uh, Her book shows – or her books show that she's one of the best curators of furniture styles he's ever seen. Uh, Also look at Kent Townsend. We'll put the link uh, to his website. It's actually kenttownsend.com. He's an Art Deco specialist. His furniture is heart-stoppingly beautiful. More than – more an interpreter of – I don't know this name. Ruhlman? Ruhlman. Yeah, he's the the – artist that we highlighted way way back in this this episode or actually that nick sent us the link yes okay gotcha uh but he says more so a uh interpreter than a copyist Uh, he's a really great guy and also takes students on occasionally another thing your listener might not know is that there's a huge difference between art deco of the u.s the uk and france and when art deco ran its course in the u.s the industrial designers like raymond louis lowey lowey helped push it downward in the middle class as modern with an E at the end. Oh, well, if fancy. it's with the E at the end, that's very fancy. <laughs> uh, think bent chromed tube furniture, toasters, fridges, ashtrays, etc. So thanks for that, Howard. A little clarification there for, um, was it, was it Alice, Al- Alice, Ashley, Ashley, Ashley asked last time. It's actually a guy, right? I that think asked? so. Yeah. Or was and, it? Yeah. Shannon made that assumption and we're just going to follow along okay. blindly. I'm just getting confused on my, my guy girl names and okay. Uh, well, that's like Madison. Uh, who's got the next one? You want to get that, Matt? Yeah, I can take care of this. And this one came from Wayne. And this is also in regards to Ashley's question Ashley. this week about the lack of art deco instruction out there. Chris Schwartz wrote an interesting blog post when he published his campaign furniture book, which is fantastic. According to Wayne, I still haven't had a chance to peruse it yet. Uh, he says that. Oh, what? You gonna, it's good. Is it? It's good. It's good. Is it? Is it something that you want to take on a long campaign? Yes. Okay. Uh, he, he says that, uh, Chris apparently doesn't talk about Art Deco specifically, but I think this quote sums it up well. Quote from Chris Schwartz, writing a book on an obscure furniture style is economic stupidity. Mm, interesting. Well, that's what we were talking about is why 
are there no resources or very few resources on this? And, and that kind of sums it up. And I think Shannon, you were talking about that as well, why the magazines only focus on certain things and kind of, you know, pigeonhole the community in a way, because that's the stuff that sells. You're just not going to be able to sell as many books if you write about that obscure niche topic. Right. That's it's right. hard to build furniture that you know will last a hundred years when you know that the style won't. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to end up being sold for $10 at like grandma's flea market because everyone in the future considers it ugly. Right. You yeah, know, I'm that, starting to see the magazines as being somewhat like Nickelback. You know, they're just selling out for the money. Oh, God. Nickelback. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> wow. All right. Move on to our uh, voicemails. We got a few to plow through here. First one's from Gene. Question about using uh, linseed oil on some veneered surfaces. Hey, guys. This is Gene from Austin, Texas. Love the show. Quick question. I'm experimenting with veneers for some tables for my sister. Uh, I got a walnut veneer, and I used linseed oil, really like it. My question is, do I need to then go back over that with some poly or some kind of other sealant? Uh, if it matters, I also use contact cement. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Thanks for the question, Gene. I, you know, like this is one of those things. It's what do you want out of the finish? You know, right, yeah. a lot of people use linseed oil, just maybe a little oil and wax, very uh, soft, sort of close to the wood finish. I don't like to do that much because I like to have more protection. So if you if you think that the piece requires a little bit more in the way of durability, then sure, you want to hit it with a film finish. A polyurethane would be a good idea once that linseed oil layer is completely cured. Uh, hit it with a poly or a wiping varnish, and I think you'll be fine. But there's, geez, there's so many ways you can go. But the question is, what do you want out of this piece? And personally, protection, I think, is a good idea. Absolutely. He did say table, didn't he? He was making a table, a couple of tables. I believe his, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, but, but he doesn't have to, I mean, some people, I mean, but the thing is a veneer, you're kind of want to, you want a little bit more protection there just because if there's any sort of abrasion, you don't want it to go right into that wood layer. You'd like to have something there on top uh, right. to protect it. So I would recommend it. But that said, if it's like a little occasional table that he's going to baby, there's no reason he has to put anything else on it. If he, if he really doesn't want to. Yeah. Well, and the, the flip side to that is, you know, repairing, having to repair a, a film finish, a hard film finish mm -hmm. can be a little bit more difficult. So if the veneer is really thin and you're worried that while I'm sanding to repair this, I could sand through the veneer, then yeah. maybe, I don't know, I'm getting really paranoid now, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. What you said. <laughs> oh, by the way, this, we had somebody complain about our voicemails recently in the, <laughs> in the recent show on a uh, hybrid woodworking and how terrible they are. I forgot about that. And yeah. now we're doing like seven voicemails. <laughs> and this is uh, this is dedicated to that guy. Um, let's move well, on to, well, why don't we just put the suggestion out there before you call, you need to practice <laughs> at least three or four times, preferably in a mirror and, or with one other individual around you to give you a critique. Oh, hey, look, yeah. we, we constantly remind people to keep it short, keep it concise. And I've gone through the trouble because I thought the question was good. I've actually, when I had time edited voicemails down to remove ums, ahs, spaces, and words that didn't need to be there uh, because I wanted to play the question that bad. Um, so we have a high appreciation for our voicemails and we'll continue to honor them as such. But we also knock voicemails off the list when they go over a minute, you know, so we do try to we certainly try to be respectful of people's times. But I love voicemails. I think they're a great uh, tie in to the community and gives other people a voice, which some people um, don't. Uh, like. I, uh, um, uh, I, <laughs> I spit um, it uh, out, Matt. I, I, uh, um, I agree. Yeah. Just, just remember the old sales technique. Smile when you leave your voicemail. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next one. Let's do it. I'm waiting for you to shut up if you, you know. Oh, wait, hold on. Your wait, joke okay, is go. run its course. All right, here we go. Hi, this is Josh calling from Lincoln, Nebraska. 
I would like to know what the best ways are to attach web frames to carcass sides. I'm building a chest of drawers and I've seen stop sliding dovetails used, but I'm concerned about the difficulty of that joint using only typical hand tools. Uh, I know short tenons can be used, but that creates a lot of pieces that all have to be glued up at once when the whole carcass goes together. Could I just slide the front and back rails into dados and the sides and glue those joints with something like Nexabond? I'd appreciate your thoughts on this. Love the show. Thanks. All right. Chest of drawers. I mean, dust frames, if you're not familiar, we should probably just quickly review what dust frames or um, uh, web frames are. Basically, your internal structure of something like a chest of drawers needs a little bit of help on the inside to to help prevent racking, just to kind of keep everything nice and rigid. Uh, Serves a couple other purposes. A lot of times it gives your drawer something uh, solid to ride on. Uh, And then if there's a panel in that frame, kind of has the uh, like the extra thing of, of protecting the items in there. And, and as it says, a dust frame, preventing dust from you know transferring from one compartment to the next. So if you're putting these, like essentially these web frames in each section, you have choices. And really a lot of times it depends on the structure of the cabinet. Now, most of the chest of drawers that I've ever built, and I haven't built that many, um, I don't know why, maybe it's just the type of woodworking I do or the style, but a lot of times I have vertical, uh, thick vertical legs so I've got four legs to work with, and the panel is inset or floating. So I'm not actually putting my web frame directly into or on the panel. I'm usually anchoring it to the solid wood in the leg. So I kind of just notch them and make sure that the web frame is connected to those notches. And there's not much in the way of movement front to back because it's floating panels on the sides. So my guess is he's probably talking something more like a classic solid side case right and he's trying to get that wet frame <clears throat> yeah in if there. he's doing a sliding dovetail it would have to be a solid yeah so um, so i mean solid case so he wants to know what the best is from my experience and from what 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 i've seen other people do to me the one that strikes me as the best is that sliding dovetail joint i think that it's hard to get better than that um so the question is what what would be good enough that that might be a little bit easier to construct with the with you know maybe using hand tools it sounds like well, we should clarify one of the reasons that I think that sliding dovetail is the best is not only because of the man- mechanical um, the, the mechanical way it holds it to bring it from pulling out, but it also deals with the wood movement issue. Yeah. Uh, because now that solid case can expand and contract over the long grain of the web frame and you don't have to um, you don't have to worry about any kind of glue or anything like that. So, you know, dados have been used as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the sliding dovetail really started to get used a lot, um, whatchamacallit, in, as we moved into the federal period. And prior to that, there would be like a, um, a, like a, a blade, a drawer blade, you know, just that thin piece that goes between. And it's really in the front and it's made out of your primary wood. That would have been dovetailed into the front of the case and only, you know, really shallow you know, maybe two inches at most. And then behind that would be your dust frame that was made out of some secondary wood. Right. Um, and that was just set in a dado um, on the side. The The problem you have to be careful with with the dado is you don't want to glue it up along its entire length because then you're freezing in that cross grain situation. Right. But, you know, I see no problem with with it not being strong enough because essentially you are trapping it I think you need to focus on making the back a little bit more rigid, maybe do a frame and panel back or something like that so that it, it it's holding that case at the front and the back so that it can't bow out on you. Yeah. Well, and you're looking at the cumulative effect of, 
you know, five or six, depending on the number of drawers, but five or six web frames all glued, you know, strategically like that to allow for movement is still pretty damn strong. Yeah. You know, yeah. on the whole. And, and you are gluing it like you're just gluing it maybe the first four inches right. um, into the dado and the rest of it is free to move out the back. Yeah. Out the back, Matt. Oh, out well, that's back. that's definitely a direction I often had. <laughs> um, the other when, thing I'll, I'll suggest, sorry to just beat this dead horse, but the, the dovetail doesn't have to be that hard. Um, there's nothing that says you have to do a dovetail on both sides. One sliding dovetail you see a lot of in, in historical pieces only has the tail only has that angle cut on one side on the bottom side and the top is perfectly flush. Mm -hmm. So it's just this one sided tail. And a lot of times it's tapered so that it slides in really easy and it comes up firm just in the last, you know, four inches or so. Um, And from a hand tool perspective, um, give it a shot. I think you'll be surprised that it's not that hard to cut. Just a saw and a chisel and you're done. Cool. All right, let's move on to the next one. We got a question from Matt, who's a little bit sad. He's sad because he doesn't have a shop. Oh, poor Matt. Hello, Matt, Mark, and Shannon. My name is Matthew. I'm calling to ask you guys a quick question. In a few months, um, I'll be moving from uh, Georgia to California. So um, I'll be without a shop for a few weeks to a few months. Um, the last time I moved, I actually... Uh, went through uh, some serious depression because I did not have a place to uh, woodwork. And uh, I'm not joking because my family actually began to worry about me. Um, so do you guys have any idea of what I can do, any woodwork-related um, uh, thing during that period of time, maybe a car? I do have a number of hand tools that I can use. So any, any advice you can give me would be great. Um, uh, thank you a lot. I enjoy the show. Okay, here's my first bit of advice, all right? The way I look at it when it comes to depression is you're not dead, and a lot of people are. So you got that going for you. <laughs> more <Right>? every day. <laughs> yeah, man, more people die every day, and you're not one of them yet. So that's a good thing. Um, that I think it's a great question, a very valid uh, thing to think about, and it ties in really well to uh, our buddy Dan's email that came in, actually just uh, messaged me on Facebook, and I'll, I'll read that as well, and we'll kind of talk about this together. He says, due to our housing situation, I'm hanging up my hat. With the move we have uh, to make, it looks like I'm losing my shop. That means my woodworking will be taking a sabbatical. So I have a question for the Wood Talk boys. Uh, how far do you how far do you want your woodworking to go? And if circumstances out of your control forced you out or caused you to pause your pursuits, would you be happy with what you've achieved? So that's a very interesting thing to think about. So, so first part of the question we've got for um, for Matt is basically what to do when you don't have access to a shop with the expectation that he will have access eventually. So what can he do in the interim to keep his love of the, the craft alive and keep him interested enough so he doesn't kind of spiral down into bad moods? And uh, and then Daniel's question is about our personal achievements in woodworking. And if we were forced out of it, would we be happy with what we've done so far? Well, you know, to address Matt, uh, the first part of it with, with Matt's concern about you know, not having necessarily the whole entire shop, but yet he will maybe have access to some of his tools. To be honest, this whole entire time, I've been over on Pinterest and I just kind of did a quick search on something like as simple as wood project ideas. Mm -hmm. And there are so many little things on here that there's no way in the world that these would require a full complement of tools. There are a lot of things that easily just your, your basic 
tools that you may ordinarily have just sitting around in a, a, a kitchen drawer or something just for doing little maintenance. Even if you're running an apartment, oftentimes you have a small little complement of, of tools. Yeah. And there are so many things on here that you could you could easily, when you're feeling those doldrums kind of kicking in or something, tackle some of these for a lack of a better term, kind of like DIY, smaller, maybe even craftsy kind of projects. And who knows, maybe it, it may actually even spark a new interest, take you in a completely different direction. And there's nothing wrong with that because, again, you're still enjoying the, the, the creation. You're having a chance to express yourself and, and kind of go from there. Would, Another thing I might suggest is, as he mentioned, you know, he may have the chisel or something like that. Maybe this is an opportunity to take up something. And this takes a while potentially to learn this, although Shannon seems to pick up these things immediately and then I hate him for it, <laughs> is stuff like learning how to like carve letters and stuff so like that. You're not talking about carving, are you? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, now you can become you better than Shannon. <laughs> well, and this it looks good on video. I need to send it to you and then you can get back to me. <laughs> well, we've talked about this. I think someone asked a similar question about, you know, what do you do in the, in the downtime? Part of my problem with consumption of woodworking content is I just don't have enough time to do it. So if I were in a situation that I was like between shops or some reason that I couldn't woodwork, I have got a stack of DVDs and a list of DVDs that I've yet to purchase that are just waiting for me. I've got seasons of the Woodwright shop that I would love to sit down and watch uh, woodworks seasons that I want to sit down and watch. If I didn't have the actual activity of woodworking, I would be living vicariously and learning at the same time by watching other woodworkers do what they do, especially if it's just temporary, by the time that period is over, you are going to be fired up to do it. I mean, and for me, if I was in between shops, I actually might, I see his, his point about being a little bit depressed. If I, if I don't want to do minimalist woodworking, but I'm forced to, cause that's all I've got. That would be kind of annoying for me if it wasn't like yeah. a conscious choice to, to pare down, you know? Right. So, so, so I would rather spend my time educating and, and sort of, prepping my brain for when my shop is back and then I could go full, you know, full force and, and try to create oh, yeah. some of the things and use the skills that I just learned. Absolutely. There, there well, is nothing wrong with sitting down and taking a bunch of notes and just going from there. It's insane. The things that sometimes you'll even put like those, you'll connect the dots in the yeah. process of doing that. And it's like, you know what, the last time I tried that, I had this issue and now I found out a potential way around it. Totally. Shannon, you're going to say something. I think the the carving thing is definitely worth a shot. Um, I've taken my carving chisels with me on vacation a couple mm-hmm. of times, and it's just so cool how portable that little sub interest of woodworking is. Yeah, you know, a chisel roll and a couple of little blocks of wood, and you know, clamp it to a tabletop, and you're off to work. And you know, you can think of it as as a you know a, a forced training period because if you really want to get back to furniture. Well, now you've got some skills to be able to add some carving to your furniture. That's a really great way to do it. The other thing is, is if you don't have the space, maybe there's someone who is, you know, there are co-op shops, there are um, parks and rec type shops that you can work in. Um, A lot of times, some of the, I know um, one of the local woodcrafts here has, most woodcrafts have some sort of shop in the back for class Mm -hmm. classes and stuff. One of the uh, woodcrafts here down uh, near D.C. has an actual club. It's called the Woodworkers Club that you can pay a membership or whatever, and you've got full access to that shop. So there are other places. So I don't know whether he's saying he doesn't, he's not going to have the space or he's just not going to be able to have the time or whatever. If the time is there, there's probably an exterior, external option for Mm -hmm. him as well. Or take a class. You know, maybe it's only a week long, but you can work in their shop. Um, And that'll 
kind of give you the fix for a little while. Keep the blood yeah. flowing. That's for sure. Yep. All yep. right. So tying into to Dan's question, and this is a little bit more, you know, out there in terms of uh, thinking about your, your personal feelings on this stuff. If you had to stop woodworking tomorrow, Matt, would you feel satisfied with what you've done so far? I'd only feel partially satisfied, and I'm being completely honest about that. There, you know, We've gone over our bucket list before of all the things that ideally we would complete you know, long before we ever have to give up woodworking for whatever reason. And the way I see it is every time I, I complete a project, and especially lately, I've been really having this little voice in the back of my head, and I know it's not schizophrenia, but I've been having this voice that's like, you know what, it, it is time to start pushing yourself so much harder than you ever have before. So I feel like if I had to stop today for whatever reason, there would be a emptiness in my soul. And I'm being completely serious here that I did not <laughs> necessarily go as far as I thought I was going I'm to. I'm going to laugh at you for saying that. <laughs> Just because I laugh at other people when they're down doesn't mean it's okay for you to do it to okay, me. Sorry. Sorry, birthday boy. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel about it too. I mean, it's I don't know if I had to just stop. I think one of the the issues with well, it's, to me, it's a good thing. One of the things about lifelong woodworkers, like people like us who are who are sort of either committed professionally or just on a personal level to the craft, do you ever have intentions of stopping? Mm, like at this point and, and think about the greats, you know, think about the greats and a lot of the people that we follow at, at least at the hobbyist woodworker level who you consider the greats people like, um, uh, why am I spacing on this Maloof and Krenov, you know, these are guys who, as long as their, their, uh, feet would lead them into their shop every day would still go out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a job. It's something that you do because what else are you going to do? That's what you do. So I fully plan to be doing this as long as I'm physically capable of doing it. And having that, having that taken away from me before, before my physical well-being is the reason for stopping would, would definitely be a problem for me. I don't feel like I've achieved enough. And even, even if I hit all those bucket list items, Matt, I would still have new bucket list items after those oh, yeah. are satisfied. I mean, that's that's the idea. You keep raising the bar for yourself. So I would be incredibly unsatisfied. I mean, I, I would could look back on some of the things I've done and said, well, it was great, you know, the connecting with people and everything we've done with our websites. But I don't know what satisfied as a person, like on a personal level as a woodworker, that'd be tough to swallow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you said. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's no way I, I've screwed up too many things to stop yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to another one here from Peter. He has a, well, it was a question comment sort of thing, but you'll hear it. Hey guys, this is Peter boys from Waxhaw, North Carolina. I love the show. Just, uh, was looking at, uh, Matt's basement workshop is now offering t-shirts with woodworking in America coming up this, uh, this fall. Wasn't sure if you guys were going to have some sort of bet between uh, Matt and Mark to see who was going to be wearing uh, more of their T-shirts. I'd love to see something go down at Woodworking in America coming up this fall. I love the show. Talk to you guys later. Well, truthfully, if I wore a T-shirt to Woodworking in America, I'd only wear one. So, you know, I'm not going to wear more than (laughs) one shirt. You wouldn't uh, change it either. Right. Maybe we should have a hybrid shirt that'd be like half Mark, half Matt. Well, as you guys saw last year, I'm pretty terrible about wearing my own shirts when I'm supposed <laughs> so to. You didn't even bring a Wood Talk <laughs> shirt, if I remember correctly. I'm uh, pretty bad at that. But, you know, the, the reason I put this in there, number one, is because I do want people to know, Matt, you're, are you still taking pre-orders for your shirts? I am right now. Hopefully, if everything goes right, I could potentially have them in 
house this week and be able to get those orders out immediately. Excellent. So go to mattsbasementworkshop.com and you could uh, find a post on that and pre-order and order yourself a beautiful Matt's Basement Workshop t-shirt. The other reason is because I thought we had mentioned wood woodworking in America many times in the past. Uh, we all attended last year and I think just as a quick show of hands, this may be the year that most, if not all three of us, will not be attending. And I think the sooner we let people know that the better, because we had such a great event last year that if we're not there, clearly we're not going to have an event. Um, right. so, so I don't want people getting tickets thinking, you know, that that's going to happen and then be disappointed. So, um, show of hands. I, I'm not going, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to be making it this year. I, I am very much on the fence, but it's leaning more towards probably not attending. And Shannon? I'm going to be in Mark's camp at this point. I kind of unintentionally established this every year of the year pattern, Mm -hmm. and it seems to have worked quite well. And with some of the travel due to teaching and stuff that's going on this year, I could make it work, but it would be unpaid leave (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Whoops. So, yeah, probably probably not going to work out. Well, in that case, since neither one of you are going to be there, that means all the attention can be on this guy. Oh, in that case, I'm still on the fence. It it sucks, too, because the location is so much easier for me, but I just, I don't know that I can make it work this year. Yeah, it's a tough year for me, too. Too much travel on the plate already. So, for everyone, you know, I uh, do have to add... There are Renaissance Woodworker t-shirts, by the way. Are there? Yeah, yeah. I use them for uh, – I, I was dyeing some projects the other day, and they absorbed like nobody's business. <laughs> so absorbing. Yeah, I, I don't have a fancy supplier like you guys do. I just use one of those um, cafe press type things where you get it printed up. So sure. unfortunately, they're not as cheap as they could be if I had a supplier. But yeah, if you go to my homepage, scroll to the bottom, you'll see a little swag store button there you can buy hand tool school and renaissance woodworker t-shirts and as an added bonus the material is so thin that you could see your nipples through it Ooh, in that case i'm gonna give <laughs> you a couple of those it's good for the ladies <laughs> all right well we had another one here from roberto and he just i'm not gonna play it because i don't really have a good answer he's got a question about belt sanders and his belt sander keeps flopping off and he's tried every calibration setting and, and tensioning that he can do and he can't get good results and um yeah, I don't have any resources for him. I don't use a belt sander much. I mean, obviously it comes down to calibration. There could be a flaw in his in particular where the seam keeps catching on something. So it starts to rip, uh, but I don't have a great answer for him. So I figure it's not worth spending time on. You guys have a whole lot. Either of you have familiarity with the belt sander. You might be able to help Roberto. No, I had I've one only once. seen him in races. That's right. Yeah. At the AWFS, the belt That's sander right. races. You got to play it though. Cause it's Roberto. <clears throat> All right, here we yeah. go. Yeah. Hey guys, this is Peter Boys from. Oops, no, that's not. <laughs> wow, that's not Roberto. Roberto. Oh, he sounds he lost so your accent, dude. What happened? Hold on, I got it. In Ohio now. I got it here. Hey, Illinois. how you doing, guys? It's Roberto from Illinois. There you go. That's all I'm playing. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's move on to uh, email. Got one each for us here. Uh, the first one's from Brian. He says, "I can't get my saw blade square." I have a Delta Unisaw. I adjust my table saw blade to be square by holding up my square to the right side of the saw blade. And then I move the square to the left side of the blade and it shows that it's leaning. It looks like the blade is leaning to the right. So I readjust the blade to be square again and recheck the other side by moving the square to the right side of the blade. However, it then reads that the blade is leaning to the left. 
No matter what I do, I can only get one side of the blade square to the table. I thought it might be that my square is at a square. After checking it, my square is dead on. The same thing happens when I use another square as well. I thought that maybe the zero clearance insert wasn't flat and was throwing it off. I took the insert out, checked for square, same problem, still occurs. I thought it might be the blade is bent. Use a woodworker too. I put in a different blade, same problem. What do you guys think? I know, Shannon, if I use the handsaw, I could just lean to the other side. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's an interesting question I, I can't say with any certainty what the problem is but the consistency with which he, he's seeing this issue to me kind of sounds like the table itself might be a little bit out and you may not be picking up on this like I try not to reference from my zero clearance at all when I'm doing squaring activities because I don't it might be sitting weird it might be cockeyed in the the the, the holder and um, might need adjustment so I just take it out and I use a larger square that spans the gap and I could measure from the left and from the right and if uh, if your table's not flat it could very well be enough of a dip that even with that insert in there, it's establishing um, this lack of squareness. So you may want to just double check your table and see. Here's the other thing, though. You may not care because what are you going to do if your table saw is not perfectly flat? Now that you know it, you know, it, like it's one of those problems where sometimes we chase these these really uh, uh, finite numbers and it isn't something that we can necessarily even change. So right. my recommendation is look at the side of the blade that you're you're cutting on. Most of the time, you're going to be cutting on the right side. So truthfully, all you really need to worry about is is the square is the uh, table saw blade square to the right side with reference to the area you're making the cut. That's where it needs to be square. Who cares about what's going on in the off cut? And if there is a dip in the table, chances are that off cut. It's unaffected by it. Your things are still going to be cut square and it'll just drop into that space that's a little bit low, it sounds like. So um, I would square to the right side and make a few test cuts. Then check your work and see if your work is square. If it is, done deal. Don't worry about it. Um, and, and frankly, that to me, like I said, it just sounds like a dip and that's the way I would handle it. You know, it's interesting. I was just trying to think. I don't think I ever held a square up to the left side of my blade. Mm -hmm. You know, because I would usually... Um, set set the blade to its height or whatever, I would check that it was square and then I would slide the fence in for my cut uh -huh. because what I cared about was the keep side of that cut. Yeah. I don't think I, now that I think about it, I was like, well, why would I care what well, the left if, side of the blade is? Let's say you're going with a miter, uh, a miter gauge and you're making oh, cross cuts. Okay. That is a, a case where you'd care, but I would urge Brian to try that. Don't, like make it square to the right and then do your cross cut. And you know that the square would have been off on the left-hand side. You're doing this intentionally. What I want you to do is not look at the blade, check your work, see if the work is square, because if it is a little bit of a dip, the rest of the table might actually be fairly flat. So on the, the hole, the reference surface is flat enough to register a square cut. So there's a real good chance when he does that, uh, as long as it's square on the right, he's going to find out that even a cross cut piece produces a, a result that's going to be square enough for, for what he's doing there. But, oh, you know, if you can, when in doubt, check the work. I mean, that's the same thing that happens on the jointer all the time. People go nuts trying to get that thing perfectly calibrated. And then you ask them, have you tried to joint anything on it? And they say no. So <laughs> you really need to know how this stuff, like how far do you go? Well, you, you tune it up as well as you need to so that it doesn't impact the work negatively. Um, right. And that's usually the goal. So Exactly. Yeah. Sweet. Well, hey, speaking of table saws, and of course we had the conversation earlier about what do we do with our blades, Larry is asking, I wonder how often you find that a single combination blade is sufficient for your needs as opposed to dedicated rip and crosscut blades, plywood blades, etc. I have a couple of good combo blades, Forrest and Freud, but also have a Freud glue line rip blade I use for tenons and big ripping tasks. 
I have an 80-tooth cross-cut blade that I use instead of a shooting board for really nice end-grain cuts. Am I being too compulsive? No. At this point, you're being a braggart, Larry. To be quite honest with you. <laughs> Look you at all, all my blades. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all rich in the blades. Look at me. Make it rain. Nah, don't cause blood. Uh, <laughs> I'm making it a bit of up in here. So Larry is asking, should I just rely on a good sharp combo? How often do you need to do you find that you need to change the blades on your table saws? And Larry, I'm going to tell you right now, I have two blades Lazy. and they're both combos. And I have one for when I send the one out for sharpening and I have the other one for a while. I'm waiting for the one to come back from the sharpening. Lazy. And that's it. Yep. The only thing I ever added to that was a square grind um, for for what you call it. What are those things called? Dados. Yeah. And like trimming up 10 inch cheeks i had the alternating bevel forest too and then i had a forest square grind and that was it right yeah, yeah no- i know that it's it's really tempting to go with all these different types of specialized blades and stuff but quite honestly for the vast majority of my work um yeah i really i found the combo blade is more than what i need yeah, and if and actually if, not more, it's exactly what I need. I think if his work dictates it, if he's doing a lot of eight quarter stock and he's just ripping through this stuff, sure, you you might want a rip blade on there. It's going to be uh, less stress on the saw, less stress mm-hmm. on you, better results. Um, but for I think for average work, I think sometimes laziness wins. And those forty tooth high quality crosscut blades, or not crosscut, the forty tooth combination blades are so good in general, that they just produce great results, at least good enough results that I don't ever feel compelled to, to try anything else like, uh, you know, a higher tooth blade or lower tooth for rips. Right. Absolutely. I find it ironic that I had just basically that one blade other than the joinery blade. And now that I don't use power tools, I have like seven rip saws yeah. for specific thicknesses of wood, one that's tuned for specific types of wood. That's because you don't, cut saws. it's because you don't have three horsepower behind your arm. <laughs> One fifteenth horsepower. That's all I can muster. Right. I'm just going to say that you fell for all the hype, and they're like, "Yes, (laughs) yes, pretty much." Sucker. (laughs) Yeah. As it is, I'm telling people now: don't focus on trying to get a rip and a crosscut saw. Just get one. Just get one. (laughs) Cool. Don't don't do what I do. (laughs) Do as I say. All righty. Let's see here. We've got uh, this is from somebody. This is from David. He says, I have a couple of old wooden body molding planes. One is a moving filster plane and the other is a panel raising plane. I'm seeking to bring them back into use with nice, sharp blades. For one of these, I sharpen the blade my usual way, which depends on getting a back, the back flat and mirror smooth before working the bevel. Clearly, this was not the approach of the original owner, who seems to have just worked on the edge of the back. As a result, it took me forever to get the back flat, starting with 40 grit sandpaper working up to an 8,000 grit stone. Before diving with the second plane, I have had second thoughts about whether this is the right approach with this kind of plane. Do you have any experience with these old molding planes using modern sharpening approaches? Um, yes, it is very common that you'll find essentially a back bevel um, because somebody got lazy you know, and said, I don't want you to bring this down. I'm just going to grind the bevel on and it makes it much, much faster. Um, first things first. Uh, I rarely would go as low as 40 grit. Um, I rarely go below 200 when it comes to working on the back of a blade. The scratches are so deep on that really coarse stuff that it will take forever. If you're trying to get a mirror polish, it is going to take a long time to bring that up because you, you've essentially grooved the heck out of the back of the blade. You now have a toothed blade because you used 40 grit sandpaper. So, and, and I know the reason people do that is because, man, this is taking forever. So then they go coarse, man, this is taking forever. And they go coarser, et cetera, et cetera. And you end up with, you know, the belt sander running 25 grit 
and it just ends up making life harder for you. The best way I know to deal with this is to grind the blade 90 degrees to the stone. So you're actually grinding a flat on the edge of the blade to get past that bevel. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're talking about molding planes, um, the filister is, I mean, it's just a skewed iron. So there's, that's really easy to fix. Um, complex profiles and things like that, even standard hollows and rounds, a lot of times the shape of the blade has to be tuned to match that of the sole. So if you, um, if you advance the iron so that it's sticking out of, of the wooden body and you uh, scribe it, I will usually use soot or you can use like gun bluing or something to color the back of the blade and then take a scratch all or an X-Acto knife or something and trace the shape of the sole onto the blade and then pull the blade out. You'll see that the actual shape of the cutting edge does not match the shape of the sole because let's face it, wood moves and the steel didn't. So you have to actually regrind that edge in order to get it right. Or no matter what you do, you're never going to get the shape that the sole dictates. So usually that has to be done anyway. And the best way to do that, again, is grinding it 90 degrees to the stone because you're removing uh, steel a lot faster. You're not trying to – or rather, you're moving much less steel. You're not trying to regrind the whole bevel at that point. Um, that's going to be the fastest way to get past that back bevel. Then you go back to your, um, your what do you call it, his modern sharpening approach. It's going to save you a heck of a lot of time. Cool. What cool. he said. All that. Yeah. Oh, well. And a bag of chips. And a bag of chips. Um, well, just a couple of ways you can support the show if you want to do that. If you like what you hear, if you can stand listening to all these terrible voicemails, and uh, you endure all of that and you still like us enough to support us, you can do that. Go to woodtalkshow.com, look over in the left-hand column, and you'll see those donation links there. So thank you for everyone who does that. You can also go to twwstore.com and buy your Wood Talk t-shirt if you want to wear that and try to outdo the Matt's Basement Workshop t-shirts that'll be showing up at Woodworking in America. Or wear it underneath the Matt's Basement Workshop to help reinforce how amazing those combinations are. That's true. That is true. Uh, And also, you can leave us an iTunes review. If you go to the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews and just click that little star rating there. And uh, I didn't check our most recent reviews, so bad me. But thanks to everybody who may have potentially left us a review. Well, I think there is one in there. It's from... Oh, no, never never mind. Matt's mom. Matt, (laughs) Maddie, you're so great. Something about El Gato (laughs) in a taco. I'm not sure. Exactly. All right. Well, Matt, how about you give him that contact info and we'll get out of here. No, because I really want the show to go on forever. How about you give them that contact info and we'll get out of here? <laughs> right. you do it anyway. <laughs> hey, folks, you have a comment, a question, or maybe a topic suggestion? You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180, like our many voicemailers did today. And email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. And, of course, you can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page, which we had some really awesome comments come in about the latest show. So get that dialogue going with all of them. That would be just absolutely amazing. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show, you're going to find uh, all of those, the previous ones, and today you're going to find them at woodtalkshow.com. Oh my gosh, that earlier brain fart just came back. <laughs> Coming back. Just came back. Came up again. <laughs> We're you know, that was like your tour guide voice, Matt. If oh, you look well, to the left, you. you'll find the Wood Talk Show Facebook page. <laughs> no, well, oh, by the way, there are exits at either end because as soon as the show continues, you're going to be running for them. Oh, man, a satin gum. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. Happy birthday, guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
Frogpants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.